chapter 7, we'll begin reading there in verse 13, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. False prophets. We consider the verses in verse 13 and 14 last week. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And he's speaking of salvation and to eternal life. Is it no wonder there's so much controversy about what that gate is, who that gate is, and how to go through it? It's the most controversial thing on earth. There's millions of opinions. And Jesus is warning here with the most severe language with a command to enter into the true gate, the, the real door, and because it is straight and the way is narrow, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Many have surmised our Lord, what are the, the depth of our Lord's words at that phrase, few there be that find it. Is it literally, most, or many people might assume, that there will be less people in heaven than there will be in hell? Is that what our Lord is saying? Is he saying that as you go through life, it, the appearance is that, that we are in a minority of those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that he is the only way to salvation. When you talk with people at school and work and in your neighborhood, it seems that those who believe that are in the minority. When we look at the broad way, the majority of the people seem to be hurling headlong to destruction, doing their own thing, at any cost, don't get in my way, don't bother me with the facts. I just want to get what I want to out of life without any obstructions whatsoever. So the picture here is a very graphic one. A broad boulevard of a crowd, a horde of people running, pushing, shoving their way toward eternity. Opposite to that is an absolutely opposite way which is narrow, the gate, the door to be on that way is narrow, and our Lord says, few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You shall know them by their fruits. Please underline those words. I hear people all the time that says we really can't know whether something is genuine or real or not, but our Lord tells us very definitely, you shall know them, and you can do that by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns? You don't pluck grapes off of a thorn bush. It's preposterous. Our figs, which was a very big part of their diet, figs from thistles. No, figs grow on fig trees. And so that seems very plain and logical, doesn't it? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. If a tree is good, it will have good fruit. If the fruit is good, the tree is good. Unless somebody came and stuck it on there uh, in a masquerading kind of way. And that, that can be true. People can go to great lengths to make it look like they're producing fruit. But in the end, there will be no life. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree, and here he's speaking about a person, though the analogy is from nature. 
cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, again, he repeats it, doesn't it? By their fruit, fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven doeth. There is practices. His life is a, a, a practice. doesn't mean the person is perfect, that he does not stumble and fall, but the bent, the direction, the practice of that person's life is to do the will of the Father. It's the same word that is used in, in 1 John, which talks about he that does not sin, does not practice sin. Many will say to me in that day, and so we see many in verse 13, many which go in at the broad gate, the broad road, and in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, what day? The great day, when the secrets and the hearts of men are revealed in the great day of judgment. Many in that day, the the John in the Revelation describes that great white throne judgment and the small and the great, everyone that ever lived will be standing there. And many will say to me in that crowd, Lord, Lord, have we not, and he gives, for example, prophesied in your name. And in thy name have cast out devils. And in thy name done many wonderful works. And the word wonderful there is speaking of miraculous, God-like works and then will i profess unto them i never knew you depart from me ye that work iniquity one of the obstacles of entering in at the straight gate we said there are many obstacles there's pride there's wrong thinking religion self-righteousness all kinds of hurdles are obstacles to keep us from going in at the the straight gate and the the door but one of the most prominent obstacles of entering in at the straight gate is the danger of false prophets. Whatever God has that is genuine, you can rest assured that Satan has a counterfeit of that. The whole Sermon on the Mount describes graphically what salvation is and how it looks, how it is lived out, the fruit of genuine salvation. And this whole message is to show that righteousness cannot be gained by works. Remember, he says, except your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. That was like a, a lead balloon that just crushed them to the ground because the scribes and the Pharisees went to great lengths to show their uh, religion and uh, made a big deal out of it. And in everyone's eyes, if they didn't get to heaven, no one would get to heaven. So Jesus might as well have said, there's not a chance for any of you ever to get into heaven because in their minds, since you had to work for it, and the scribes and the Pharisees gave them lists and lists added to the Old Testament law of their commentary about what you, how many steps you could walk on the Sabbath day, how much you could pick up without it being considered work that the scriptures never addressed. Remember our Lord said, you have put burdens on men's backs that you can't bear and carry, let alone expect them to. And the crowd there thought, there's no way if the scribes and the Pharisees aren't going to get in, we don't have a chance. And so he's trying to dismantle the works righteousness mindset 
that is so ingrained into human nature all the way back to the first children of Adam and Eve with Cain, the way of Cain. I will impress God. He will accept what I have to do if I am sincere enough and good enough and do it good enough. I will gain God's approval. That's works righteousness. The whole Sermon on the Mount is given to dismantle that, and not only to dismantle that thinking, but to show what true righteousness is and what it looks like, lived out. In verse 13, he commands those that would be saved to enter in at the straight gate. This is a command. It's not a suggestion. And so the listeners had better find out what that gate is, who that gate is, and what that, where that road leads in opposition to that wide gate and broad road that leads to destruction. May I just tell you here, you don't have to do anything to go in at the wide gate and the wide boulevard. You're on it by birth. You're headed in the wrong direction from the moment you came into this world. And so if you're wondering, did I miss the road? If you're on the broad road, the, the wide gate and the broad road, you didn't have to do anything to get on it. You are born on it. All of us are born sinners, and we sin because we are sinners. Jesus himself is the gate. He is the door. He calls himself that. I am the door. By me, if any man will enter in, he shall be saved. He is the way to salvation. By him we must be saved. For there is no other name given among, under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. Do you see these imperative words and verbs? Satan uses false prophets to obstruct the way to the straight gate and the narrow road. And he's very successful at it. Look at the world religions. Look at even in so-called Christendom, all the isms and schisms and ideas that are contrary to the pure, free grace of God. Grace is unmerited unearned favor given from God to man. We do not deserve it. And because we do not deserve it, we could never get to a place where we would deserve it. The sinner must come to the place where they realize that, where we realize that and thrust ourselves by faith upon the mercy, the grace of God. It is the gift of God, lest any man should what? Should boast. Satan uses false prophets to obstruct the way and litter the way so that people don't even see the door and if they do they don't go in at it they try to climb in some other way as he describes in john chapter 10 from the fall of adam in the garden god calls men to speak for him and these men give the message that god gives them early on we could say that abel was the first prophet he witnessed for the lord by his obeying what God's word said and his sacrifice, his blood sacrifice was a, a, a sign, a sermon in and of itself. So God has, in his mysterious sovereignty, because it pleases him, has chosen to use fellow sinners to show other sinners the way and the word of God. But because of that, and because Satan is a deceiver and a liar, Satan uses false prophets too, and he says that he, what he says is from God. And so many people throw up their hands and say, well, how can we know? This person says he's real. That person says he's real. Either they're both right, and they can't be if they're saying two different things, 
or none of them are right, and so most people just decide I won't have anything to do with any of it. Well, that doesn't solve anything, does it? The Bible gives us very clear teaching here about what to do, about how to tell, and how to examine what is being said. Jeremiah 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 30, God told him, a wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. And they're wonderful. We only think of wonderful as good, but it is amazing beyond imagination. It does not necessarily mean something good. And here in the context, it is, uh, uh, seems uh, beyond human capability. A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. And the priests bear rule by their means by their own means. And my people love to have it so. That sounds very up to date, doesn't it? And what will you do in the end thereof? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 14, I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. This is God speaking. And he enumerates some of the things that these false prophets are guilty of. I have seen it. And of course, God sees and knows all things. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none of them return from his wickedness or repent of his wickedness. False prophets will have nothing to do with repentance. And so they are all of them unto me as, and this is a drastic language the Lord uses in Jeremiah 23, verse 14. They are all of them unto me as Sodom and the inhabitants uh, as of Gomorrah. What a, 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 a title, if you will, that God puts over those who would lead people astray. Jeremiah 23, verse 16, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of prophets that prophesy unto you that they make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of the Lord. In verse 21, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, in verse 24, There shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders. Our Lord tells us that these people, in some way that we do not fully understand, energized by the power of Satan himself or either by sleight of hand, but their, their works will truly appear to be miraculous. They shall show great signs and wonders. Do you see why you cannot use signs and wonders as the, the, the test of whether something is genuine or not? Our Lord's miracles could not be duplicated. The miracles that Jesus Christ performed were so unusual and so godlike that even his detractors had to admit that no one could do those kinds of things unless God sent him. But Jesus said these false prophets to an untrained eye or someone who's, if your heart is blinded by sin already, you're already a, a candidate for being deluded and something will seem right. You see the unsaved heart in mind, though very astute and educated in the spiritual realm, it is dead and cannot see the things of God. And so miracles, so-called miracles and signs and wonders can be misinterpreted in so much that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Jesus said, if it were possible, 
they would absolutely deceive the very elect. That doesn't mean that genuinely converted people cannot be led astray into false doctrine to some point. But it will not be to, to, to utter devastation or to the damnation of their souls. Jude, that little book of the New Testament, one of the shortest books of the Bible, and yet deals with some of the most weighty matters in all the Scripture. Jude, verse 4, says, There are certain men crept in unawares, or they crept in, uh, in, a, in a false way, in an insidious way, and that's the way false prophets, that's part of their way they operate. They don't have false prophets tattooed on their forehead, and I'm trying to sell you something that's not true. They use deceiving words and so forth. We'll, we'll see in just a moment, but they creep in. Key word, creep in. It sounds like Satan, doesn't it? Slithering in the garden. Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of God. Here's one of the key things that, false, that some false teachers do. Many of them do. Turning the grace of God, our God, into lasciviousness. Can you imagine such a thing? The direct opposite of salvation and holiness, but turning it in to something, the very antithesis of what it should be. Lasciviousness is just open and unhindered un, un, uh, uh, sinfulness in various ways, predominantly in the sexual realm. Can you imagine turning the grace of God into something the very antithesis of what it should be? And denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see some key things in Jude verse 4? You see why I say some weighty information in that little bitty book, that letter. That one of the key things that false prophets will do is to turn the grace of God into something else. And they will deny that Jesus Christ is the only Lord God. The deity of Jesus Christ is, is at the crux of the matter. And when we say, how do I can tell a false prophet, that's the key. That's where I start when I hear somebody speak and say, you, it doesn't take you very long. If you know the scripture, you can tell whether someone is saying something that does not ring true. You can read one of these lost, so-called lost books or gospels that wasn't included. All, all those, I wouldn't tell you to read them, but if you do read any of that or the writings of a cult you will always, it may sound religious, it may even sound like they use King James English. It's amazing to me, the Book of Mormon was written in King James English. The angels, you know, whatever they, those two angels that brought the tablets, the golden tablets, they just happened to, to write it in King James English. And it may sound very scriptural, but it will not ring true. It will have a hollow ting to it. Now that may not be very uh, technical, but when you know the Lord and you know his word, nothing else is like it. If, if you are a connoisseur or an expert in some area, you ever watch Ant Antiques Roadshow and you see something that looks like it's 100, 200 years old. And I saw the other night this, this woman, she thought she had the epitome of a certain chair, or a little chest, and it was beautiful. And he said, this is an absolute fake. The look on her face, she just, you know, she saw the dollar marks hit the floor. And he took out the drawer, turned it upside down and said, all this is wrong. This is not, this is not the way it's not oxidized. The wood is not aged like it should. See how it's put together. This is old wood put together to make look like an old piece, but it's not. 
And he could, spot, he could just look at it before he touched it. He, he looked at it and told it, it was not what it was purported to be and why, and then he began just piece after piece to take it apart why it wasn't. Well, I am told, although I don't know, that those who are experts in counterfeit money don't spend the time analyzing counterfeit money. They know the real thing, and so they can just look or touch a, a counterfeit bill and find that it is not. Now, I'm, I've just read that. I'm not sure. But I do know this. I, sometimes people will want to study false religions and cults, and there, you might can be helped by knowing a cursory um, introduction of what their basic tenets are, but do not read their literature. Do not immerse yourself into that. that it will not help you one bit, but I will tell you what will help you. If you know the Word of God, if you know the Scripture, you can, everything else will, will be weighed in that balance because that's what the Lord says to do. Use the standard of His Word to measure everything. Now, false prophets use, guess what? Deceit. <laughs> that's how they operate. The Old Testament prophets, interestingly, dressed the part. They wore rough animal skins, hairy animal hides, a la Elijah, uh, John the Baptist, and they were, could be seen. Part of them serving the Lord, it seems, was to be, uh, stand out, and they did, by their, their lifestyle, the simplicity of their lifestyle, and their dress. Everyone knew one of the Old Testament prophets by looking at them. And th it was very plain. Their rough animal skin clothes, recognizable, plain. The shepherds wore clothing woven from the wool of the sheep that they tended. The shepherds' garments would be the cloak and whatever they wore would have been from the very wool of the sheep that they, that they tended. False prophets do not deceive the flock by impersonating sheep, John MacArthur writes in his book, but by impersonating the shepherd. They, they put the shepherd's clothes, wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, sometimes the little cartoons will have a wolf, you know, looking, trying to look like a sheep. That's not the picture. The picture is a wolf, a, a deceiver, dressed like the shepherd, the same garment that the shepherd would have. By impersonating the shepherd who wears the sheep's clothing in the form of his wool garments. And just as the ancient false prophets often wore the garments of the true prophet, if they wanted to, to lead the people in a false way, they would have those rough clothes on. And so false shepherds often disguise themselves as true shepherds. Satan's man goes under the guise of God's man. And we have, even in our day and time, they use the same titles, reverend and all kinds of things, and they're far, far from that in actuality in the practice of their lives. Now, this because you put a title on your name. I hear people called apostles and all kinds of things. They, they, they take those titles upon, upon themselves uh, that does not make you an apostle by naming yourself one. In fact, that's a key thing, a flashing light to say they're not. But false shepherds often disguise themselves as true shepherds, and they go under the guise of God's man, claiming to teach truth in order to deceive, to mis, uh, mislead, and, if possible, to destroy God's people. 
there are basically three categories of false teachers. First of all, the heretics. You may hear some teaching and you'll say, that is heretical. It said, for example, someone came out, and this happens from time to time, that Jesus was immoral, that he had several wives or something like that. Something that is absolutely outside the realm of Scripture is heresy. They openly reject the Word of God as it is. They twist it and teach uh, either that it's totally not true or that it's something opposite of God's Word. Heretic. Then there are apostates. And in my thinking, the poster boy for apostates would be Judas. He once held, at least outwardly, and no doubt, we, although we can't get inside Judas's head and soul, sincerely, it would seem, there was never a question raised about Judas's sincerity ever in, his, in the Lord's ministry. He was so trusted, in fact, that he was the treasurer of the first church. He held the bag. He oversaw all the finances. And he led the objections when the money was so-called wasted upon the Lord. This could have been taken and sold for 200 penny worth. We could have bought food for the poor, <laughs> that kind of thing. Judas was impeccable as far as his outward behavior. He was trustworthy. And he held to the teachings of Christ. He went along with him. He was never exposed for who he was until the very end. And then he walked away from it and rejected it. An apostate is one who once followed the true faith but have turned away from it, rejected it, and then they're trying to lead others astray. I read recently the son of Edith and Francis Schaeffer. Some of you will remember the Schaeffers from uh, several years ago. They're both dead now who uh, had a a Christian commune, so-called, in the the Alps. And uh, Francis Schaeffer taught Christian philosophy, was a very noted a teacher, and, and many people follow his teachings. And his son, their son, went along with it. But I read recently an article by him who has he's totally rejected the faith of his parents and said uh, several things in there that was very, very disheartening and to the point that would lead you that, that he had uh, rejected a position that he once had. And then there are deceivers, the heretics, the apostates, and there are deceivers. A deceiver gives the appearance of orthodoxy. They are not a liberal. They're not a cultist. They speak favorably of Christ and the ways of the Lord. The the cross in the Bible, they use biblical terms. They uh, associate and uh, some might say use true believers to help build their empires and their works and their following. But they are fake. They are a deceiver. Their words may be right, but they are living a lie. And these are probably the most dangerous of the three categories. A heretic, you mean you can hear it and say, that's not true. That didn't, that's not what the scripture says. Even if someone doesn't agree with the scripture, they can hear heretical teaching and know that's, that's out of the ballpark. That is not anywhere near the truth. And we can recognize apostates once who had a position, but have left it, thrown it away, and are trying to lead people astray. But the deceiver is the the most damning of all of these because of the the way they go about it. They purposefully deceive. Now, I might should, but I don't have the liberty from my own self at this point 
to name names in that area. But I would just tell you that if you look around today, there are many, many deceivers. I will give you the information of how you can tell, and you can put the ones you hear in the category or not. But as always, it really doesn't matter names and faces, does it? What does the Scripture say? And then that, that settles it as far as that goes. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 13 says, Paul said to the Corinthians, For such are false apostles. Do you know there were some men masquerading in Paul's day as an apostle and they were not? Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. Now, no apostle made himself an apostle. For one thing, every New Testament believer knew that the apostles were handpicked by the Lord. They had seen the resurrected Christ, and they were supernaturally gifted to perform miracles like our Lord performed. And so you just couldn't say, I think I'll be an apostle. You know, that, that was not possible. And because of that, we do not believe in apostolic secession. There are no apostles today. That ended in the New Testament age as the, the word of knowledge or the prophet to the point of foretelling truth. A prophet in the New Testament day, this age that we live in today, the age of grace, foretells the word of God, teaches it and proclaims it as I'm doing tonight. But I have no new information to give you other than what was written in the scripture. And if I tell you that I have something new other than the scripture, then get up and walk out and don't listen to anything else I or anyone else would have to say. If they said, I want to give you a new revelation that you've never heard, and it's from God, automatically antennas go up that this person is a deceiver. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Eve wasn't scared of him. Key thought. She wasn't, oh, he's got horns, he's got a tail, he's a breathing, fire-breathing monster. She was not scared of Satan. He was evidently such a marvelous and charming creature and as I've read, some would say that Eve saw every day, every time she turned around, there was a new dazzling and delightful thing in the, in the garden. I mean, this, this gorgeous and unbelievable paradise that God had created for them. And so when Satan spoke, the serpent spoke, uh, she was not alarmed or scared. He had obviously transformed himself into something he masqueraded. He wore a mask. Isn't that what hypocrites do? And so, therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Now, we have in our text here, in verses 16 through 20, tells us how to identify the false prophets. And I'm not going to have to go into great detail because it is so simple our Lord tells us it is a true standard. It's not some list of 10 things or 25 things. By their fruits, you shall know them. And then, in case you didn't get it, he says it again. By their fruits, you shall know them. I know I have an apple tree in my yard. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I picked them off the apple tree this summer. I have a pear tree in my yard. Now, I'm not a horticulturist. And when I moved there, I saw two trees it's about this time of the year. I couldn't tell you what they were. I probably knew they were not an oak tree or a pine tree. But beyond that, I really, they were not real big trees. I didn't have an idea. And even when they took on leaves, again, I took botany, but I didn't 
major in it or, or spent a whole lot of time identifying leaves, although I made the leaf project in ninth grade like most people did, I still could not tell you a, a pine, I mean, a, <laughs> I hope I can tell a pine leaf, a, a pear leaf from an apple tree. I know I should be able to, I'm just telling you. Even when the leaves came out, I'd say, I don't know what kind of, Kathy would say, what, is, what do you think that is? I don't know. But we're going to find out. And then it bloomed. But guess what? I still didn't know. It was a tree with blooms on it. But after a while, you know what I could tell? Little indication of fruit, and the little fruit grew to big fruit, and then it ripened until one day she said, are you going to pick it? It's going to ruin if you don't go out there and pick the, the fruit. And we were about to leave to go uh, to, to preach in England, and she said, you're, you're not a good steward unless that fruit weighs. So what did I do? Go out there and pick, and I had a basket of, of pears and a basket of apples. How can I be so sure about that? You may say, well, preacher, you're awfully, you know, uh, okay, the word escapes me. You're so sure about that fruit. Why? I know what an apple is. And though I'm not a, a scientist or horticulturist, I can tell an apple. I even tasted them, okay? And I knew which was an apple and which was a pear. And that's the standard our Lord gives us. By their fruit you shall know them. Doesn't that work? Isn't that easy? Can't you use that? You know what their fruit is? If you look closely enough, you will see it. If you get beyond the words and the religious ease and even the ways of doing things or the emphasis or the vocabulary, sometimes that's very deceiving. People may use words like salvation and the Lord Jesus Christ and means anything but what comes to your mind from the scriptures of what you have been taught. There's in, with each, in each of us our inner character. Our inner motives and standards will eventually at some point come out. John Calvin said, Nothing is more difficult to counterfeit than virtue. And that's so true. Think about that. Sincerity. Now, character is a matter of the heart. And the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit does produce his fruit, doesn't he? In fact, that's proof that a person is genuinely converted. The Holy Spirit will produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And the many references in the Scripture tell about love for the Lord, love for one another, an unhypocritical, loving, forgiving love. And it's at the top of the list of the fruit, we, we, we should not picture the fruit as being different kinds of fruit, but of the sections of an orange or the cluster of grapes, and all of it is part of the whole, and that, but it, the Holy Spirit produces all of it in the life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, this is what the Holy Spirit does in a heart that's been regenerate, regenerated. Corrupt theology, messed up theology, unbiblical theology will lead to a corrupt life. And the scriptures have already we've, uh, referred to it, but you'll often see that immorality and false teaching go hand in hand. Many of you remember several years ago the Jim Jones cult. Do you remember that in South uh, America? This man was noted by senators and governmental leaders. He had all kinds of favor 
in, with the government here and even high people of high uh, 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 places. And he uh, had a youth programs, all kinds of things. And then I mean, people just took it hook, line, and sinker. They took a whole bunch of them down. They started a commune down in South America. And you know the horrible, tragic story where they drank Kool-Aid, and we often use that as a byword of people who believe, you know, take something hook, line, and sinker. They drank the Kool-Aid. And a thou over a 1,000 of them died. But rife within that movement was sexual uh, immorality, and often that will go along with it, no matter what's coming out of the mouth as far as religious talk. But uh, immorality is often, not 100% of the time, but often associated with, with uh, cultic or false uh, prophets. Corrupt theology will lead to a corrupt life. False teaching and perverted living go together. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, A Christian can generally be known by his appearance. The man who really believes in the holiness of God and who knows his own sinfulness and the blackness of his own heart the man who believes in the judgment of God and the possibility of hell and torment, the man who really believes that he himself is so vile and helpless that nothing but the coming of the Son of God from heaven to earth and his going to the bitter shame and agony and cruelty of the cross could ever save him, ever reconcile him to God, this man is going to show all that in his personality. He is a man who is bound to give the impression of meekness. He is bound to be humble. Our Lord reminds us here that if a man is not humble, we are to be very wary of him. Which leaves another insert here, that the pridefulness and drawing attention to self and drawing people, a false prophet will often, a false teacher will often draw people to themselves. And there will be a control over the people and the, the false prophet's personality. It's a very key thing there. Our Lord reminds us here that if a man is not humble, we are not to be, we're to be very wary of him. He can put on a kind of sheep's clothing, but that is not true humility. That is not true meekness. And if a man's doctrine is wrong, it will generally show itself at this point. He will be affable and pleasant. He will appeal to the natural man and to the things that are physical and carnal but he will not give the impression of being a man who has seen himself as a hell-bound sinner and who has been saved by the grace of God alone. It is nearly always the case in false prophets. They will attract, and you can examine some of those that are more notable, they will examine a mixed, they will, they will uh, draw to themselves a mixed multitude of people you will see people from all strata agreeing with them and being drawn to them who are not the unorthodox in faith along with those who profess to be Christians. The false prophets will draw with a wide net and will be praised often by a cross-section of people, which is not the case of a, a true prophet who almost uh, unanimously is avowed to be less than desirable except from the, the sheep who hear his voice. That is an amazing thing. A false prophet not only will be seen by how they act, their personality, because what's in will come out at some point, but also by what they teach. And again, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is based on the grace of God alone. 
It is a free gift. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. It is Christ alone saving a sinner who comes to him by faith. There's nothing a person can do to gain salvation. But a false prophet deviates there. And so really to cut to the chase, the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is Christ and what did he do? And how is a person saved? Those two things alone. You, can, you don't have to go to another class or seminar about what's false or true. That right there will settle the, the, the fact for you. Now, there may be some other nuances of things that are important that need to be seen after, but that's the crux of the matter as far as I'm concerned. But what a false ideas will be taught, or at least unimportant uh, important truths will be omitted. Major parts of orthodoxy will be left out, like the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the triunity of God, key cardinal truths that the Bible, you can't read it and and miss, the sinfulness, the total depravity of man. You don't have to read very far in the book of Genesis to find out we've got problems, serious problems of murder and incest and greed and hatred just just in the first introductory verses. And then you see that there must be an intervention of God unless there's before there'll be any, any hope whatsoever. And so, not only by their character and by their creed, but the false prophets never has a narrow, never emphasizes the narrow gate or the narrow way or the work of Jesus Christ. They may talk a lot about the love of God or that part of God's attribute and leave off all the other uh, attributes of God, his perfection, his holiness, his justice, his avenging of wrong was almost never uh, brought out uh, in a false prophet's teaching. Well, the Bible says that every tree that does not bear good fruit or biblical fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. By their fruits you shall know them. These are the words of our Lord, and we must take him at his word and examine. Prove. What does the scripture say? Prove all things. How do you try it? How do you prove it? By the words of Christ. And this Bible is the words of Christ. Everything that is written here, that is the standard. And that's why we should give ourselves over to it, to study it, and to know it. So we will not hear the voice of another, that we will only hear the voice of our shepherd. May the Lord grant us and give us the grace to obey his word.